0: Good morning. After that worship set, I'm kind of inclined to just say amen, and um, and we can go from here. And and I don't know if you, you probably didn't necessarily recognize her for what it was, but Baby Davey over here contributing to the singing—that is his form of singing. He's learning to follow in his parents' footsteps, so that was really cool to hear. And and I'm not sure I've seen. Brings new meaning to multitasking with uh, <laughs> rhythm, keyboard, vocal. I just yeah. You shouldn't miss either. You know. So here is our lead pastor. He's on vacation. And where is he? He's here serving. I I think he's. I think there's another subtle message at work there. And I'll just kind of let that play out. Um, so this is somewhat of a rare moment. You know, this whole calling for me is much later in life. So this is sermon number three in my lifetime series. In and of itself, that should tell you to manage your expectations. Um, you know, I, I neither am particularly gifted or skilled uh, uh, towards this. Um, however, since I was last up here, that was almost a year ago, I, I, in my mind and estimation, I've grown uh, almost immeasurably. If you were around back then, I, I have this tendency to um, to tackle the really small topics, things like love and grace, and um, and then on top of that, my propensity is to cram it all into one message, and so the feedback has been that's kind of somewhat like you know the analogy of drinking from a fire hose, and. So the profound change in me is that I've recognized this time that I, I'm I'm going to split this topic today between two weeks, so I'm going to cut the flow of the fire hose in half, and you know for me that's profound, deep thinking and change, and so I, I think you'll you'll appreciate that. I'm still you know uh, pretty note bound in my uh, delivery here. It's really important to me that I convey and communicate as, as accurately as I can uh, before God. And um, the other side is that uh, this is a departure from our norm. Uh, for any of you that are visiting, um, uh, in, in a very right and intentional way, our typical teaching uh, through Pastor Ben is expository. And we move through entire books of scripture and that's so critical we're committed to that because the entirety of god's word needs to be preached and taught and so that's our commitment but today you know we're moving into this is a a topical study and in and of itself then it kind of brings um, uh, in my mind what can be another risk i I am essentially building a case for you here in what i believe that scripture and god uh, would have us to know and, but in, in the midst of that, there is some risk in that um, I will be taking Scripture out of its context to apply it uh, in different ways, and and so I would ask you to be on alert and committed to hearing and listening and weighing my words and the applications of Scripture that I bring, and uh, and you know if uh, by the end of this you you uh, you feel like anything has been misapplied, let me know. Don't jump up midstream and and yell it out because there's a possibility that in the course of my uh, uh, my delivery I, I may answer that question but surely please uh, connect with me afterwards and uh, and as, as I'll have the opportunity to be up here uh, next week Lord willing um, I can uh, correct anything that I might need to so as we enter into this topic of humility it's a uh, it's so, so significant. And I can speak for myself in that God continually and regularly um, reveals to me just how proud I am and how much more work he still has yet to do in my life. The one observation I have that, that I find kind of interesting is, is that my wife, Darlene, doesn't need that same divine revelation to see my pride. Um I don't know what your experience is. I kind of marvel at that. I'm kind of wondering, Lord, is this a gift that you routinely give to spouses? And 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 maybe that's true of you. Maybe that's not. If it seems to be somewhat universal, then it, there might be another message there in that we should be, uh, maybe we should take that input more seriously. Uh, you know, this may indeed be God's provision to us for those of us that are married. Um, I'm, I, I know that I can testify that uh, God has used Arlene as probably the most profound uh change agent in my life so that's it's a good thing but as i say that too and we go through this at times i'll be sharing pretty pointedly with you and and some of this is kind of tough today uh as i break this in half too um i may leave you in a disruptive state today for us to pick back up next week and um but there's oh there's great stuff uh, i i believe in God's word, what he has for us. So um, as I speak, I just want you to know that I'm as much preaching to myself as I'm sharing with you guys. So as it turns out, there's very little that happens in our spiritual life in the absence of humility. I think that's a bold statement, but I think that uh, we can support that through God's word today. Let's just begin rightly uh, in prayer. Father, uh, thank you. You love us so greatly. We are so blessed. Your grace is so amazing. Lord, we just look to you confidently, expectantly, knowing that what you're about, your will is that we would look increasingly like Jesus. So we commit ourselves to this time. We pray you'll use these words. We know that your word will not return void. We thank you in advance for the work that you're doing both in us and through us, and we pray this all in Jesus' name, Amen. Those of you that don't know me, I'm have this great propensity for tears, but I came prepared, so I'm uh, and just. I just have to work through it, and, and I hope that won't be a distraction to you um, as we go. So, um, humility. We usually start with a topic like this, and we have to bring some definition to it. And as you go out to the dictionaries, you're going to find uh, uh, lots of language that suggests um, that humility is a low self, uh, uh, sense of self-regard sometimes a, self, uh, of, uh, a sense of unworthiness, an attitude that you have no special importance in comparison to others. Other definitions um, will suggest that it's an accurate understanding of your self-worth. Um, and in most cases, it's going to recognize that the antithesis of humility is, of course, is pride. Um, and humility is seen, in some cases, as freedom, from arrogance. And there's truth in all those views, but uh, the really cool thing is in our Christian faith, God provides a really robust understanding of true humility. And of course, Jesus is our ultimate example. Augustine uh, earned the early church father, dating all the way back to the 350s, um, who has had significant impact on the practical theology of both Protestants and Catholics to this very day. He's quoted, If you ask me what is the first precept of the Christian religion, I will answer first, second, and third, humility. So there's very something very significant here, very foundational in humility to our faith. So let me put forward what I think is a good uh, general definition to start with from this biblical godly perspective. Humility, the habitual frame of mind of a child of God is that of one who feels not only that he owes all his natural gifts, etc., to God, but he has been the object of undeserving, uh, undeserving redeeming love and who regards himself as being not his own but God's in Christ. He cannot exalt himself, for he knows that he has nothing of himself. So this humble mind is at the root of all other graces and virtues. That's a quote from W.L. Walker, dated 1915, as he wrote it for the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. But he captures it well, and it's going to need some unpacking. So as I look at this and ponder this and, and ponder the whole, I think, of, of Scripture, I come away with three foundational beginnings um, that I think are implied in this uh, definition and are supported in, in Scripture. This is as close, I think, as I'll ever come to a three-point uh, message. So I, you know, this was not intentional. I just had these three beginning foundations. Um, So the very first beginning foundation that I see here is understanding our position, our relationship to God. And if I could put it really simply, it would be simple, it would be this: God is God, and I'm not. That's humbling, right? We clearly need to recognize that. King David said in Psalm 8, 3 through 6: When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So all that exists is from God, including us. There's nothing we have or are that is not created in us or given to us by him. So, you think about it in comparison to us, God, this Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we look to, is in one sense utterly transcendent. He's beyond us, He's wholly other. He's holy, all powerful, all knowing, timeless, without beginning or end. He's everywhere present, beyond the created space and time continuum. His very nature in comparison to us demands no other reasonable response than that of awe, awe, what the Bible refers to as the fear of the Lord, an overwhelming respect that results in a posture of humility, both heart and mind. Fact is, as we get into the Scripture, into God's Word, we quickly find that that's actually... A response that God requires of us, right? For thus say the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And a passage that Pastor Ben shared last week, he has told you, old man, What is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So if I could summarize this first foundation, it would be that we can only come to God from the very beginning here with a heart and a mind of humility. This acknowledgement that he is God and I am not. makes sense then when we consider Hebrews 11.6 and it says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who seek him, right? So the second foundation I pull out here is um, to recognize the truth of the hopeless state that we rest in, that we've gotten ourselves into and how God has responded to that state. And simply, God has made the way when I was hopeless and helpless. Essentially, God can when I cannot, right? He's responded to my state of utter hopelessness. The passage is lengthy here, but really nobody says this better than Paul to give us the reality check that we often need, and certainly when we come to God. But this Romans passage, 118 through 23, I know you're all familiar with, but for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, us, were without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So our unlimited expressions of self-reliance and self-centeredness is, of course, the heart of sin working against the will and desires of God. It's against his rightful place. It's against his will. And ultimately, it's an attempt on our part to steal the glory and the honor that belong to him alone. But God, I love those words, Romans 5, 6 through 8, into this massive gap of hopelessness that we stand in, this transcendent God, Has made himself imminent, personal. He's come to us in person, right? To rescue us from our self inflicted death penalty. So he's come to you, not in general, but he's come to you in particular, right? You specifically, out of all the billions of people that now exist. And yet the word says, for the wages of sin is death. Physical, yes but spiritual separation from God for eternity, right? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then, in my mind, Jesus said it in the best-known verse that's so dear to all of us, that God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, right? John three sixteen. And then the Apostle Paul, you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, If you're convinced of the first foundation that I laid, that God is truly God, we're not. There's a side then when we recognize what God has done for us that there should be this even greater sense of awe on our part, of God's personal response to us. His amazing grace, right? I invite you to go back and and perhaps listen to that message again of last year on grace. I listen to it myself because I need the constant reminder of where I live in the provisions of Jesus. So we're deeply humbled by his love for us. We're not humbled by the magnitude of our sin, but we're humbled by the magnitude of his grace response to our sin. There is a side of this that we should be rightly overwhelmed. Think of the Apostle Peter in his first encounter with Jesus, when Jesus miraculously multiplied his fish catch, it was an inbreaking demonstration of the power and the presence of God in Peter's life. And he rightly fell down at Jesus' knees, right, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter was awestruck, humbled by the very presence of Jesus. So as we step into this and humble ourselves into this presence of God, it's deeply humbling. Our position becomes crystal clear. In our hopelessness, he comes. And then I think the third foundation of this, this beginnings of humility is receiving this grace that God has given us. In effect, what I would, I would simply say is that God's way is the only way and we demonstrate a posture of humility by accepting that. So, you know, I'm speaking to the choir here. Uh, most of you have personally experienced what I'm talking about. Um, today you stand in salvation and grace through faith in Jesus. At some point in time, you came to a partial but sufficient end of yourself. You deeply felt the need for God and knew there was nothing in you to close the relational gap. So, you humbly sought God on His terms, right? Jesus. So, in the second position, I think we have this biblical picture to help us understand what I think is a right response to this overwhelming uh, provision of God in His grace and love. In Luke chapter 7, you know, um, the passage of uh, what we call the sinful woman. And Jesus is dining with uh, an influential uh, Pharisee. And he tells this self-righteous Pharisee, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. And Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, though the scene here, Jesus has not yet completed the work that he came to do at the cross. The Holy Spirit has not yet come to indwell believers. Still, again, Jesus' very presence is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And his redemptive love is being expressed And in the scene, this woman has received the gift of God's love and forgiveness in Jesus in faith to her ultimate salvation, right? Now, others in the scene did not, but chose to cling to their own prideful ways. But just like this woman, it's true of us that Jesus has come to each one of us, to our house where we live, whatever that might look like. He became present through the Holy Spirit to each one of us. And the question is, how did we respond? Did we respond like this sinful woman with a spirit of brokenness and humble reception and then expressing that in reciprocal love to Jesus? Or we could uh, respond with ambivalence and maybe even outright rejection. And we see that across the world, right? All of society around us. Everyone has that choice of how they're going to choose to respond. It amazes me, though, when I think about it, how powerful our human self-deception can be. Really, how powerful our pride can be. How invested we become in our own adaptation solutions for survival in this world. And so easily then we rationalize our sin and we convince ourselves we're not that bad or, okay, I screwed up, I'll do better next time, I'll get my arms around this. And we maintain control, or so we think. But there's a side of this that even as believers, we might be practicing a sense of, you know, thanks, Jesus really appreciate. It's good to know you're around. It's good to know you love me. But you know, I think I can do this my way. I got it. And oftentimes we're motiv- motivated by our own glory. And we usually accomplish that by trying to compare ourselves to one another. And that's a really a poor comparison, right? My point here is, is that we can mentally acknowledge the gift of salvation in Christ and yet practically, on a daily basis, fail to actually receive it and live it out. And we'll talk more about that. Just a a side note. um, uh, I deliberately used the words partial and sufficient earlier in reference to when we come to the end of ourselves and realize, uh, realize our need for God's salvation. And I just want to emphasize here that the truth is that we will live out This life, walking with God, and we will progressively grow under the power and the tutelage of the Holy Spirit in the realization of just how great God's love and grace is to us. But that will only come as we also, and almost equally, come to understand from a godly perspective of how proud and sinful and needy we really are. So there's a painful side to that but this enormous redemptive side to that and that is much of our ongoing process of sanctification as we walk out our faith together. I just want to acknowledge that as I talk about but, and pointedly come at this issue of humility. But as we walk out our life of course with him in relationship with him, his grace, his mercy, his compassion, his patience take on greater and greater meaning and Uh, I I say for those, I think the longer you walk with Christ, the closer you're relationally uh, uh, walking with Jesus, and what I call in that sense, approaching the foot of the cross, that disparity becomes increasingly evident. I think we become even more, uh, uh, we more readily recognize just how significant the gap is that from the very beginning, Jesus has met on our behalf through grace. I had mentioned in the past message on on grace, which you would not remember at this point, but there was an enormous potential for freedom and living in grace, and it is a battle to live in grace as well. The truth is, as our pride wanes as God continues to heal, reveal, and re-repent of that, and our love for God and others grow, the result is grace. And when we live out of grace, we gain freedom over this need to compare ourselves to one another. We're freed from the need to attempt to earn our salvation. And it's a wonderful place to live as opposed to the place that we often get trapped in. So this third foundation of receiving this amazing grace that uh, God has given us requires that we will humble ourselves and accept God's way of reconciliation and salvation through Jesus. You know, Jesus responded to the disciples at one point who were competing for first place, and, um, in, uh, Matthew 18 and he says and calling to him a child he put him in the midst of them and said truly I say to you and unless you turn and become like children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and the apostle Peter uh, testifies uh, in Acts 4 this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders which has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So one of the things you see working out in the world around us today is that though people know that God exists, deny his existence, reject his provision in Jesus, and refuse to humble themselves and come to him on his terms. So just recapping these three foundations that, that hopefully we've laid here, we're humbly accepting that God is God and I'm not, and all that that fully means. Um, two, that God can when I cannot. He alone makes the way for a restored relationship to himself, and I'm utterly helpless to change my condition. And then third, God's way is the only way. There's no work around. there's no other option, but to accept the gift in Jesus or reject it. So these three foundations together in the very beginnings of things, I believe, result in a posture of humility. And that posture changes our priorities. Our concerns should change, and rightly so. We begin to think more in terms of what does God think? What does God care about? What's God's will? Who am I to him? What does he want from me? How has he and is he communicating to me? Now at this point, because I know that a lot of you have booked a lot of seat hours in church settings just like this. You could be saying to yourself, Craig, I got it. Heard this a thousand times. Tell me something I don't already know. And based on my own heart, my own experience, I have to say, do we really get it? Really? And then I have to look at my life and say, does my life demonstrate an increasing measure that indeed indeed I do get it? So what I mean as I say that? I think that there seems to be, in practice, a significant disconnect between What I think is our right response and then what is our actual response to God oftentimes it seems to be at odds. As it turns out when we look at the biblical record this is not a new condition for us for mankind as a whole. When we look at the nation of Israel God's chosen people under the old covenant God provided a way to deal with their sin and to remain in fellowship with them but The biblical record states, over and over for generations, and this one summary statement uh, captures it well in Judges, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger so despite this incredible long history of God's presence, provision, faithfulness loving kindness and rescue as well as the constant reminder of God's prophets the people continued to abandon God's love and turn their backs on him they refused to humble themselves to God but in pride rather demanded to go their own way You may say, "Well, that was then, but not true today." We're we're not bowing down to foreign gods. We're, we haven't forgotten God um, yet. I think there's a parallel here. So think about this. Follow with me, if you if you will. So as I see it, as we stand here today, as believers, as followers of Jesus, we're under the new covenant. God has come in person to Je- as Jesus redeemed us by paying the price for our sin at the cross. God fulfilled his own prophetic promise for a new covenant, Jeremiah 31. And he sent the Holy Spirit to live in us and guide us into all of his ways. He's provided his word for us. He could not be more personal and present than the indwelling Holy Spirit, yet he is gracious and patient with our humanity. And yet it's still true that he reveals himself most fully to the humble person who seeks him and responds in love. When I think of anyone, God knows that love cannot be forced, though he commands it of us. All throughout the testimony of Scripture, God has cared most about our heart and not our activities. Even Jesus said in John 10, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Scripture also makes clear that we have the ability, even as followers of Jesus, to quench the Spirit, right? To grieve the Spirit. In other words, we can ignore and marginalize him in our lives. So that said, let me weave some passages of Scripture together to take us from this Old Testament perspective to what I think is a New Testament somewhat parallel. So I want to turn now to this, probably the seminal passage on humility in the New Testament, and that is, of course, Philippians chapter 2. Recognize here that Paul is writing to an audience of believers. He's writing to us, those that would continue on. But he chooses an interesting way to start this chapter. Uh, I'm reading in the NIV uh, here as an exception. The language I think is helpful. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Do you see the parallel? Where I think it exists is that Paul's rationale here is similar to the Old Testament prophet who reminded God's people of who God is to them and what he's done for them. And Paul is making a similar plea here when you look at it and step back. Paul's justification for calling them to be a community of what unified, loving, humble believers is to call them to remembrance of their personal experience with the presence of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit. Kind of a a similar or a parallel to uh, the exodus. In this case, for us, it's our personal exodus, not from the slavery and the oppression of Egypt, but from the slavery to sin and the oppression of Satan. So Paul, in one sense, is saying this experience becomes the core proof that the gospel is true. God is all he says. He's accomplished our salvation 2 Corinthians 5, 5 tells us, He who has prepared for us this, um, this very thing in God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Without that personal encounter with Jesus through the Spirit, everything that I'm putting forward in my mind simply becomes academic. It's just a concept. It's only words. It's not an effective motivation towards a humble life dependent on God at all just consider for a moment, Paul could not be referring to some casual experience of God. In my mind, his conviction is that it is sufficiently powerful that it should cause you to personally embody the same unity of the Spirit, the same love of Jesus, to remove your self-centeredness and actually consider the welfare of others over your own. That's the experience that he believes is so powerful. You know, in my mind, that can't be some one-time historical event, but rather something that's ongoing in our daily life that propels propel us to such transformation. And I can confess, that's not me. Sometimes for periods, sometimes there's great glimmers and great clarity, but could I claim that that dominates my daily walk with Christ, and I I can't. And the question becomes, so what's wrong then? The Holy Spirit here, I have all these provisions. Let me get closer to what I think the heart of this is. I want to return to Philippians 2. But to really grasp something more of what it means, I want to blend together Philippians 2 and uh, Colossians 1. So I want to begin with Colossians 1.15-20 and recognize as I read this, this is the identity of Jesus. This is who Jesus is, right? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominion or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now to jump over to Philippians verses two th- five through eleven in chapter two. even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now a quick flip back to Colossians 1, picking it up at verse 21 and 22. This is what it means to us. And you, us, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So here's, I think, the challenge I know for me and perhaps for you. that To some varying degree, we have a lordship issue. We've relegated Jesus to a lesser role in our lives than he deserves and has earned through the shedding of his blood on our behalf. That's a stunning omission, uh, a stunning admission to face up to. We live, I think, often as if Jesus were just an accessory to our lives rather than the Lord of our lives. We've relegated the king of kings to a bit part in our lives. It's hard not to say that that's worthy of our remorse. Our confession. Our repentance. Let me add to the tension here. If this isn't sufficient. So though we've been given the Spirit to guide us into all truth, empower us in spiritual transformation, he's actively working in each one of us to will and to work according to his good pleasure, right? According to Philippians 2.13. We're warned, though, from 1 Peter 5.5, and Peter is speaking to believers who are under tremendous persecution because of their faith in Jesus. And he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God, what? He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if we insist on our self-centeredness, God will actively resist us. When we consider then this if-then equation that Paul gives us in Philippians 2, the question becomes, if we really want more of Jesus, how can we increase our personal experience through the Holy Spirit, so as to increase our humility and position ourselves to receive even more of Jesus and His grace? That's the challenge that I want to grapple with. That's the high priority of going to each new day. So this challenge is not new. For I think all believers, we see it throughout Scripture. But yet we serve this great high priest in Jesus who knows firsthand our struggle in living out in the flesh in this broken world. And in the midst of this, he is our constant advocate, right? We know the Holy Spirit's not going to give up on us, he provides the power to transform us, to change us. But the important takeaway here is that we have an active role. And as I kind of wrap this then, the challenge I leave with you and the, and, and the ask I have is that as you go into this next week, will you think and pray over this question? What have I and am I experiencing of Jesus through the Holy Spirit? And is it sufficient motivation to want me to love and please him? To rightly respond. Again, that question what have I and am I experiencing of Jesus through the work of the Holy Spirit? Is that motivation there that Paul speaks of? Is that experience there sufficient that I would want to pursue what it looks like to love him more deeply? to humble myself. And then next week, what we'll do is we'll pick this back up. And, uh, of course, God has made amazing provision for us. But we're going to look at how to change our direction and cooperate and respond in new ways to what God is already doing in us and for us. We're essentially going to look at how can we put humility into everyday practice. Uh, It's so worthy, and there is great hope in this. But the challenge is there, and there is so much more of Jesus for us to experience. And joy, and you're also going to find that there's another significant provision of freedom for us in humility.